Welcome to the Radically Embodied Love Podcast. Get ready to enter the portal of your cosmic heart so you feel bliss, joy, and union within. With each episode, you will learn practical ways to embody love in your life so it is felt and experienced. Co-hosted by Nasreen Barbeck and Jessica Falcon. Hello, everyone. I am so excited for the episode today because we're talking with Jessica about her journey to herself. So, Mm -hmm. Jessica, I'm so excited because although I do know some, but I love to get deeper about how did you get here? What was the beginning of your journey? In a way, what led you to today? (laughs) it's such a big question that I'm excited to delve into also you know I was reflecting the past couple days on my journey and wow I mean I've written a whole book about it so clearly we're only going to get to so much today but (laughs) it's it's um it's fascinating to look back and see how divinely orchestrated every single part of my journey has been and even though at the time I didn't know it and I had no idea sometimes what was happening and I had moments of feeling really lost or confused or or questioning you know now thinking about where I am and where it came from it's such an amazing experience to witness the perfection of the journey despite the difficulty And I hope that my telling of the journey really inspires those listening to recognize the perfection of where they are right now, because it is their soul guiding them to exactly where they need to be. Um, So that being said, (laughs) I'm going to start with um, when I was still the criminal prosecutor and an attorney, because I think it's, it's, for me, it's even still fascinating to think about how I went from that mindset, right, and that life to being a spiritual leader and teacher. And so while I was a criminal prosecutor and I had always been in touch with my soul, like I had always felt a soul, how consciously I communicated with it was a different question, right? And as I was a criminal prosecutor, I loved what I was doing, but all of these things started to happen in my life to I like to say, wake me up or shake me, shake me up really. (laughs) And get me questioning as to the bigger purpose of the world. And this was in 2008, August of 2008. So, wow, we're in the same month, August of 2022. So what's that? 14 years. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so in August of 2008, I woke up one morning while I was in the middle of this huge felony jury trial, two week long jury trial. And I woke up in the morning to the sound of horrendous rain. Long story short, within the next hour, water started coming into my house. And there was a massive flood with 13 inches of rain in a 12-hour period that flooded the home I had purchased seven months prior. And I literally had to be rescued by firefighters. I had to swim across the parking lot to be pulled up by firefighters. And I stood there for hours and watched everything I had worked so hard for literally just fall apart. 
And I lost everything in a matter of hours. Wow. My car flooded. I had a two-story condo and the upstairs possessions were fine, but everything downstairs, like including every CD, every picture I'd had of my whole life, like it was just all destroyed. And it really left me with this feeling of, wow, like here I was, I think 25 or something. And here I was thinking like, I'm doing the American dream, right? I'm, I'm buying a house. I'm, I'm a criminal prosecutor. I'm very successful. I have everything I could need and want. And it was all boom, gone like that. And what arrived was so much support and love. What do you need? How can I help you? Community. Do you need a place to stay? Like, wow, that's what really matters, right? Isn't this what really, really matters? And then for the next five-ish months, going into a depression, like questioning everything. What am I here for? Why am I here? What's going on? What's the purpose of it all? And really yearning for these deep answers and not finding them. And what I did, however, is I started longing for meditation. I don't know why. It just kind of came to me. Like, what about meditation? And I literally said, like, okay, I'm interested in meditating. I was reading Autobiography of a Yogi at that point. A friend, uh, a friend of my mom gave it to me. And so I'm reading this book, learning about all of these fantastic spiritual experiences going like, I want some of that, right? I want some of that juice. I hadn't spoken to in several years, barely a friend. I knew her through like an ex-boyfriend. And she emailed me and she says, I was just trained uh, to teach meditation and I'm offering a free class. Would you like to come? <laughs> and I was like, well, of course. And so that kind of started my meditation journey. I started studying meditation. And while I was studying meditation, I knew I needed something to get out of this kind of funk and this depression that I felt. Because literally my whole life changed. I was living somewhere temporarily because it took six months for them to repair my house for me to be able to return back in. And so I was just living elsewhere. And um, a friend, I had borrowed a used bike of the woman's house where I was staying in her garage apartment. And a friend was like, oh, I'm doing this uh, training for a hundred mile bike ride. And I was like, oh, well, I only biked two miles around the neighborhood, but I'm going to join you because I, <laughs> so I needed something right to focus on. Um, work wasn't doing it at that point. And I needed something to focus on that um, would get me into my body and get me into a new way of being, a new way of thinking. And so I started training for this. I got a used bike and I started training for this bike ride. And we go on these really long rides. And um we did the hundred mile bike ride and it was a charity event. And I remember feeling so invincible. Like if I can do this, I can do anything. Cause it took me four months to train for this. And so it was kind of like, if I can go from that to this in a few months, right. I can do anything I want in the world. Not only that, it was the first time in my life where I'd actually started to sink my mind and my body because on the bike, especially on 75 mile training rides or 50 mile training rides, you know, you're literally just out there in nature, moving your body completely present with each cycle, with each move. And it really started to create this new relationship with my body 
not as an object or not as something I was dominating or controlling or forcing to do anything, but this reciprocal relationship that's necessary in long rides and long training. And so it really brought me down and it began to anchor me, so to speak. And so it was then 2009, it was Thanksgiving, and we had just finished the 100 mile bike ride like a month before. And I went home for Thanksgiving and I took my bike in the car and I went to visit my parents and I went on a bike ride with my mom's friend, the same friend who gave me autobiography of a yogi, which is not a coincidence. She was like, oh, I also ride bikes. Let's go on a bike ride. And I'd never been on these roads before. <clears throat> and so I was faster than her. And so I was going up this hill and I was going to turn around to meet her at the base of the hill. And as I did, the sun started shining really brightly in my eyes, so much that it blinded me. And as, as soon as the sun moved, because I was in the process of turning around, as soon as the sun moved, there is a metal chain about that thick, like that's what, half an inch, not even, maybe like a quarter of an inch to half mm -hmm. an inch uh, wide, right in front of me. And I didn't have time to stop. So I... I braked and I turned to the left. And as I did, the metal chain went in my chin. You can probably still see the scar. It's been many years. Yes. And the metal chain went in my chin two inches deep. Oh, my. And to the only point in my body that didn't kill me. Like, if it had hit here, it would have killed right. me here, right? Right. The only point in my body where it wasn't going to kill me or do major, major damage. And I fell off the bike on my left side and onto the pavement. And then she, I'm like in a disarray, like what just happened? And she bikes up. She's like, uh, she looks at my face and she's like, oh my God. So she just immediately takes off her sock and gives it to me because apparently it was quite grotesque. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then she's like, sit down. I'm like, no, I have to keep walking. If I sit down, I'm going to faint. So I'm just like walking with the sock, like until we get to the hospital, we, uh, my stepdad came and picked us up, put our bikes in his truck and took us to the nearby hospital. And needless to say, I had to have over 25 stitches. And I, um, during the surgery, it was actually quite a meditative process because I was awake. And there's just this white sheet over my body and, and this shining light and my mom holding my hand and the surgeon to my right. And it was, my mom was like, she knew I meditated. She was like, just focus on your, you know, focus on your, your light, focus on whatever. And so I had this bright light also just at the same time. And it was this very very fascinating process, which I wish I had words to describe. Mm -hmm. And then I get home and my mom's taking care of me um, because I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. I couldn't move my mouth. And, um, <laughs> and it was a few days later and it was time to take the bandage off my face. And so I go into the half bath and I'm like, okay, I can do this. I hadn't even looked at my face prior to this moment. And when I looked in the mirror and I took off the bandage, I literally jumped back in horror because I was completely deformed. My face was literally smushed to the right about, you know, almost an inch out to the right, completely inflamed and swollen. And then I had this massive opening and gash uh, with stitches, but it was still <laughs> not quite closed yet. And as I'm looking at this deformed, somewhat grotesque looking face, I'm looking in my eyes and I realize these are the same eyes I've always looked at. And I keep looking, I keep looking 
I see my soul. I see it's me. It's me. It's still me. And then this upswelling happened through my whole body, this embodied knowing I am not my body. I am not my body. And it was so real in that moment that I knew my eternal nature without a doubt. Wow, that gave me chills. <laughs> <laughs> it was so like what a liberating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was just me in this little half bath, right? Having this profound spiritual experience in the midst of seeming destruction. I know to this day that I was meant to experience that, to realize, to come into contact with the truth of my nature and my eternal, my eternal nature, and that it is energy that informs my body, not my body that informs me. And so as you can imagine, uh, it was a little hard to go back to just being a prosecutor after all of these experiences. <laughs> as much as I loved the, the complexity, I was doing white collar crime at this time. That was my specialty. And so as much as I loved the complexity of investigations and, and putting things together and figuring out the puzzle pieces and being in front of the jury and planning and preparing, because I'm a natural teacher. I love to teach. And I loved all of that. But then here I go back into the system where everything is so adversarial. It's you against me and it's fighting and it's who's going to win and who's the best and it's ego-driven. As much as we want to pretend it's not, it is ego-driven, it is money-driven, it is politically driven. And I was so disheartened. I was disheartened from the day that I started, but I got even more, um, even more aware of how it was affecting me, really. Um, because I went into the system because I believe so deeply in justice and I have Libra all over my chart. It's not my primary sign, but it's all over my chart. And there's this deep need for justice that lives within me and balance and harmony. And the disconnect between what I was feeling and experiencing in my body, especially on my healing journey of going into the emotions and going into my body and, and having emotional catharsis and releasing the past and embracing uh, my feelings, which I did throughout my journey as I was healing my physical body, I was healing my emotional body simultaneously. And then the disconnect just grows so strong. I literally felt like I was going to have a nervous breakdown. And I remember at one point I went away for a week. A friend had like a country cabin and I was like, can I just go there for a week? I just need to completely get away from everything. I'm going to just break. And, um, and I really, I came out knowing like, I have to leave. I have to leave. And at the time I developed a compromise, despite the fact that it was completely opposite of what my soul actually wanted me to do was, oh, well, I can just create a holistic law firm and still be spiritual and soulful and do it my own way and get to the root cause of criminality, the root cause of, of behavior, because I was studying human behavior and, um, and still use my law degree because that's the rational thing to do, right? Like that's the smart thing to do. I've got law school debt, like I'm successful. I need to stay in this profession because that makes sense 
and I can create a compromise for my soul, right? We all know that doesn't work in the long run, but it's what I needed at the time. So it was like a little stepping stone. And so I left the being a criminal prosecutor and I started uh, the first holistic law firm in Charlotte. And I had like a hundred people at my grand opening and I had referrals right away. And I felt like, wow, this is really great. And I'm able to like be a coach slash lawyer and I'm able to really help people. Right. And, and, and then my soul, like a month or two later, went into this deep dark night of the soul of depression where I just, again, cause it was, I was ignoring what I knew and felt because I had felt this call to go away for somewhere for three months, but it felt so irrational and it felt so ridiculous to my lawyer mind and to safety and security. I just kept completely ignoring it despite all the signs I kept getting. And so my soul is like in complete distress. Like there were moments where I felt like I couldn't get off the floor and I would just turn off the lights and I would moan and I would move and I would dance and I would scream and I would not want to go into the office, even though I loved it. I just couldn't make myself go in unless it was absolutely necessary. And fast forward to, I went to a small business owners conference and I remember standing there thinking like, I don't want to tell anyone about what I'm doing. I don't want to talk about this. Everyone's fascinated. Holistic law firm. What is, I don't want to talk about it. I felt this little, like even temper tantrum, like, I don't want to talk about this stuff. This doesn't matter to me. Right. And, um, and so I leave and I, um, I go to a Reiki healer actually that I was seeing at the time. And she's like, we're not going to do any energy work today. Just make a list of all the things that you love. And I made this massive list of all the things that I love. And luring was nowhere on there. <laughs> she's like, I've never seen a list so long. <laughs> and so I'm literally just like, I confessed to her. Like the first person I'd spoken out loud to, I confessed to her this, this feeling, this knowing really that I was ignoring that I had to go away somewhere. And she's like, well, maybe it's possible that you can do that. And I'm crying and I'm like, this is ridiculous. And I'm begging for a sign. Give me a sign. Give me a sign, please. Universe, <laughs> give me a sign. And so I go meet a friend for dinner and I go on a walk. And literally I get back to my house. It's like nine, nine 30 at night. I never check my emails at night. And that night I had an email from the place where I was renting my place I'd lived for three years after the flood. And um, <laughs> it said, you have to be out in 45 days or renew your lease for a year. And I had been on a month to month for two years. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, this is it. This is the side. I just knew it in my bones. And I couldn't pretend that I didn't know it. And I remember looking around at this beautiful house beautiful like it was a 1920s like apartment in Charlotte but it was just so beautiful and I had decorated it so beautifully and on this gorgeous artwork and furniture and I look around and I'm like there's no way if I'm here in one year my soul dies if I'm here in one year my soul is dead and so I before I got up I just emailed and said I'll be out in 45 days I had no idea where I was going I had no idea what I was doing I had no idea why I just did it and then the next morning, I posted pictures of some of my furniture on Facebook. Didn't even know what I was doing. Within an hour, more than half of it had sold. And I was like, oh, God, this means it's real. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> this means I actually have to go somewhere and I actually have to do something. And I was literally at this point taking one step at a time, one breath at a time, because I had no idea what I was doing. And everything I felt was invisible. Everything I felt was just inside of me, right? It was just this knowing. It was this deep calling 
And I had nothing outside of me to validate it, which has been a huge thing in my life, right? Because what I do in my work is I bring the invisible forth to make it visible. That's what I do. And it's taken me so long to fully trust that, right? And at the time, I was nowhere near really trusting that. <laughs> and so um, I ended up just, well, I knew that I'd wanted to go to France um, and follow in the steps of Mary Magdalene because she had started coming to me um, earlier that year. And I just knew I felt such a slow longing to be there. I left out a huge significant piece of the story. So that December, it was the, it was New Year's Eve going into 2013. So it was what, 12, 31, 12. I was having a very quiet, normal New Year's Eve dinner with a friend of mine. Like we were, we were going to go out and then we were like, no, we're too tired. Let's just like have dinner and hang out and talk. We have dinner. We're putting the dishes in the kitchen. And I felt this immense pain in my stomach, like immense. And I rarely share this story publicly, but it feels like it's okay. So it was this immense pain. And I was like, I'm so sorry. Like, I have to go sit down. So I went and sat down in my little striped white and blue chair. And I'm like sitting down. I'm holding my stomach. And I feel Egypt. And I'm like, well, that's weird. But it was so intense. Like crazy pain. Crazy pain. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And she comes over and she was like a somatic healer. And we did dance together, conscious dance and five mm -hmm. rhythms and everything. And she comes over and she puts her hands on my stomach and she goes, I feel Egypt. And I was like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel Egypt? I feel Egypt. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And long story short, I was like, give me some space. I don't know what was happening. And I get down on all fours. I'm on all fours on my living room floor. And as I'm there, I go into an embodied vision where I literally go into an altered state in another dimension, but I could still feel my body on the floor. I was mm -hmm. very present. So I was having a vision in another dimension while in this physical plane. First time in my life I'd ever experienced anything like that came like that. No drugs. We weren't even drinking wine. Shockingly, like no drumming, no ceremony. It was like that. And I'm on all fours. And I'm like, oh, my God. So I'm telling her what I'm seeing. And she's like, are you safe? Is it bad? Is it okay? And I'm like, well, it feels good. So I'm just going to trust that it feels good. And so there was this lioness staring at me. And she walked. She encircled my body three times. And I was able to, like, watch her the whole time. And she's looking at me. And I knew she was a gatekeeper. Mm. I just knew she was a gatekeeper. And she was judging me. Wow. And after she encircled me three times, I kept her gaze because I felt in my body a yes. I had no idea what I was saying yes to, <laughs> but I felt a yes. And then after the three times she encircled me, a beautiful goddess appeared before me, who I now know is Isis. And have another chill. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, I had literally put a picture of Isis on my altar the night before. I didn't even really know who she was. All I knew was that I felt a connection. And I see this woman and I'm staring at her, just golden, gorgeous essence. Again, there's no, there are no words to describe. And then all of a sudden her heart falls. It's going to create grief right now. Her heart falls out of her body and it was rivers of blood, gushing grief, rivers of blood gushing out of her body. 
And again, I stepped back in horror, like, and then I took a step forward and with my left hand, I leaned down and I picked up her heart and I pulled it up and I put it in her chest. And in that moment, we both turned into light. We took a step forward and we became one. And I came out of the vision. And as soon as I came out, I looked to my left on my altar and I saw her picture and I knew it was her. I knew. And it, the rest of the journey, which I'll go into now, was me trying to understand that vision. I'm just now really getting to understand it. And I'm not going to explain it right now, mm-hmm. but you can sit with how it feels <laughs> for you. And I'll explain it maybe toward the end because it's related to what I experienced next. Mm-hmm. And so I go to Europe with this vision. This vision happened six months before I actually got on the plane. And the dark depression happened after this. And so I knew I wanted to go to France. So I decided, because I'd felt the three months for so long, I decided to book a ticket to Paris and have a three-month time frame with no plan. That was completely unusual for me. I really like to know every step I'm taking and why. That was how I, especially as an attorney, operated, right? Like, I needed to know and I needed to understand. And it all had to make sense. But something in me said, this has to be intuitively guided because I really had to come into my feminine. Because even though I was a feminist advocate and did so much for women's rights my whole life, I did it from the perspective that the feminine had to be like the masculine to be equal. And I did it at the expense of the true wild primal feminine that exists in all things that is the goddess because I didn't know. And so I needed to come into pleasure right? I needed to come into just being in my intuition and just trusting my body and listening to my body. I needed to have moments sitting at a Parisian cafe, sipping an espresso, just staring at the world for six hours. I needed to have experiences of just walking on the streets, not knowing where I was going, turning based on what my body said, needed to drop down and in to just being because I did anything but for the first you know, 30 years of my life. And I needed to just experience what it was like to be. And without the responsibilities, I'd always been the responsible one. I'd always been the one to take care of everyone else. And to just let it all drop off my shoulders and experience life. And so I let all of my meditation practices go and yoga practices go for the first several weeks. I let journaling go. I let it all go so that I could really just allow what actually wanted to be there to rise back up. And I began to meditate with life itself rather than it being a thing to do or a thing on my mat. And, um, and then from there, I just followed the little breadcrumbs. Like I went to Berlin and I went to an organic farm and I went to some, like, I went to all these little places and, and, and um, I had known I'd had dreams before leaving to go to Europe that um I needed to go to Mary Magdalene territory and lost St. Bomb, but it needed to be August 31st, September 1st, August 31st or September 1st. I had no idea why, but I felt it. I'd also felt that I was going to meet somebody and maybe not come back after three months, 
but that, which is why I actually got rid of everything. Like I got rid of every single possession. I sold it. I gave it all away and had given up my law license when I went. And, um, but I had forgotten all of that. None of that was in my conscious mind. I was just traveling intuitively doing my thing. And I ended up despite obstacle after obstacle, because getting to La St. Bon without a car is not an easy feat. And it's especially not easy when you're vegetarian and gluten-free because they don't serve either of those foods at the mountain and there's nothing around except for a little cafe that serves very French food, right? And so I had all these little obstacles like, where am I going to leave my luggage? Because I have to walk seven kilometers up the mountain. And how am I going to get there? Because there's no bus that takes you there. And how am I going to take my food? And so I had all these little obstacles and my body was like, I could just go to somewhere else to be so comfy and cozy. But my soul was like, no, you're going to go. This is part of the initiation. This is part of the test. And so um, not test as in we're being good or bad, but just an initiation that we experience that our soul takes us through sometimes. And so I ended up at La St. Baum on September 1st. And um, I arrive, I finish my chocolate right away. I start walking up the gravel path to the cave of Mary Magdalene. And this uh, as a side note, the cave of Mary Magdalene, La Saint Baum in Southern France is, has been a pilgrimage site for, uh, I think 1500 years or something. All the Kings of France would go there and make pilgrimages. And, and Mary Magdalene, um, is worshiped very differently in France than it is in America, but that's a whole different story. It'll take us a lot of other places. So, so as I'm walking up this gravel path, this man turns in front of me. And a voice says, he's your soulmate. And I laughed at the voice. Like, first of all, I'm here for Mary. I am not here for a man. <laughs> Second, I haven't seen his eyes. And you're supposed to see someone's eyes before you can know if they're your soulmate. Right? This is what I believed. And so, so he keeps walking. I keep walking. I get to the cave of Mary Magdalene. Have my experience. Have a picnic. Like, I'm up there for a couple of hours. I'll start walking back down the steps because there are 150 steps. Once you get to the end of the gravel path, I start walking down the steps. And as I'm just getting to the gravel path, I look to my right. And that same man is walking down the steps behind me. And I got really nervous suddenly. And I was like, oh, this is weird. And so I kept walking down the gravel path. And he passes me and he sits down. And I keep walking. He passes me and he sits down. And I keep walking. The third time comes next to me and he starts speaking in French. I speak French now, but at the time it didn't. And so I was like, uh, parlez-vous anglais? Do you speak English? <laughs> and he was like, oui. <laughs> Even though he didn't actually fully speak English, somehow we made it down the mountain speaking English. <laughs> and we get to the base of the mountain and there's this little cafe. Like I said, it's a very little French small cafe. And he's like, do you want to have lemonade? <laughs> and I was like, I'll have wine, but if you want lemonade, sure. <laughs> I'll sit at the cafe. <laughs> I'm in France. I'm not drinking lemonade. <laughs> and so we sit at this little cafe. First, like he goes to the bathroom to change. I go to the bathroom. We come back out. We sit at the table. He takes off his glasses. He's wearing sunglasses the whole time. And I saw the twinkle in the eye. Like a star. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm sure my mouth is hanging open. <laughs> what is happening so we talk and talk the cafe closes he's like well can i see you next weekend i'm like no i won't be here he's like what about tomorrow get an hour and a half drive he drives back the next day he gets there six o'clock i meet him at the cafe 
I'm drinking lemonade. He, I mean, I'm drinking wine. He still orders lemonade. <laughs> <laughs> the cafe closes this time. We're like, um, well, I have a few falafel balls and some lettuce and, you know, like, because there was no refrigerator. I have this like random little stuff like canned beans. Do you want to have a little picnic under the, the tree? And so he's like, sure. So we have a little picnic under the tree. Literally, at some point, we stand up. We're, we're slow dancing three shooting stars come by he has to throw the stone for the nuns to let us back in because it got dark and there was a curfew i didn't know about i mean it was literally like a fairy tale right it was like a fairy tale romance and i'm going what is happening <laughs> <laughs> and then i'm thinking i may never see him again i don't know and he's like well where are you going next i'll meet you there where are you going next i'll meet you there where are you going next? And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, if you want to join me there for a day, sure. If you want to come here for a couple of nights, sure. So our third date after that was eight nights in Portugal. <laughs> and, um, and then we just kept seeing each other and it was, it was beautiful. I ended up canceling my flight back to America uh, and booked a ticket to England instead because I didn't have a visa so I was like well I can go to England and still travel and be in Europe where he can come visit me and not have to leave Europe because if I don't try now I'll never know and I've always been someone who's like you know I'd rather try and see because life is short right. and you never know and um, I can always go back in a month right and I knew I told myself I'm not making the decision for him I'm making it for me this is what I want to know mm -hmm. and so long story short we go back um he would come visit me when I was in England I would go visit him especially over the holidays and things and then I guess it was about 11 months after we met we moved in together in Belgium and the day we moved in together like we'd had all this fairy tale the day we moved in together he starts drilling me on my sexual past and I was like shocked. I'm laying there. We like we bought a bottle of cider. You know, we'd walked around our new city. We'd unloaded everything. We had barely anything. We we're in a furnished apartment, but we unloaded everything. We go get cider. We go get food. We're sitting there. I'm like, I just popped open the bottle of cider. And I'm so excited to celebrate. I've been moving around for almost a year. Oh my God, we're going to have roots. Oh my God, this is so exciting. Oh my God, we're having our own place. Oh my God, I'm with this amazing Frenchman. This is amazing, right? And then... I pop open the cider. Do you want a glass? He's sitting at the sink. I take him a glass. I sit down on the little mattress on the floor that we have. And he starts drilling me. Like, did you have sex with a guy in Paris? Did you, have you been with other men? And I'm like, where did this come from? Once. He never asked me about my sexual history. He never asked me about anything. Once or twice, he kind of leaned into questions about had I had a boyfriend, you know, things mm -hmm. like that. But I was 31 at the time. I'm thinking, I'm not a, like, I'm yeah. not a little, right. <laughs> but apparently he expected me to be a virgin. Wow. Yes. A, a Frenchman. Yes, because <laughs> I was on the mountain of Mary Magdalene alone. Oh. And he had this image of me as this virgin woman, mm. despite being 31, traveling the world by myself. Somehow mm. I'm supposed to be this little pure virgin woman, right? Wow. Like, quote, unquote. Unexpected. And so, yes. And so then I tell him, I'm like, well, yes, I've been with other men. And he calls me a whore. Shoots it out. 
Wow. And this is just when you moved in. The day. Oh, my gosh. The day. What a shock. I was shocked. It was like the word hit me in my stomach like, like, what? What's happening? And then everything started to spin. And then it was like, how is this happening? We're moving it. Like, none of, where did this come from? Like, there had been no sign of this. And, and then I'm like, well, it's kind of like Mary Magdalene. She was called a whore Mm -hmm. because she was so powerful and she owned her sexuality and she owned her power and she owned her intelligence. Well, over the next several months, those were the exact same things that he would constantly judge me for and blame me for Mm -hmm. and demean me for. I was too intelligent. I was too charismatic. I was too much. Uh, people liked me too much. I had too many friends. I traveled more places than him. Like I wasn't allowed to beat him in a chess game. Like all of these crazy, I was learning French too fast. He wasn't learning English as fast enough, right? It was like this constant, like you're bad because you're good. Mm. You're bad because you're smart. You're bad because you're sexual. You're bad because you're powerful. And I now know that I was accepting all of that and taking it in and going, Oh, you're right. Oh, you're right. Oh, you're right. Oh, something must be wrong with me. Oh, I must be bad. Oh, I should feel shame. I should feel guilt because Mm -hmm. I never would have accepted his shaming of my sexuality. For example, had Mm -hmm. I not harbored shame inside, right? I never would have felt guilty. Had I not harbored guilt inside, Mm -hmm. I never would have accepted and apologized for being smart mm-hmm. if I hadn't been so concerned on making him feel good at my own expense. Right. Because my concern was always him, how he felt. I didn't think about how I felt. Right. He was intimidated by it. He was upset by it. Oh, then I need to make it better. It's my fault. It's mm-hmm. my fault you don't feel good. It's my fault you're not happy. It's my fault you feel threatened or intimidated. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, cause he would say, you betrayed me by being with other men. And I'm like, well, but I didn't know you. How could I betray you? Right. Right. But for him, it was a betrayal. I didn't wait for him. Wow. Right. And so it really forced me, the goddess Magdalene Isis forced me to reckon with my sexuality, which is our life force right Mm. which is our connection to the goddess to all that is and at the time even though I'd considered myself a sexually liberated woman at the time I was harboring all of these the subconscious programming that we receive in this culture for thousands of years about what makes a woman good and pure and holy right Mm -hmm. And, and so it forced me to look at, well, why did I have sex and when and with who and, and how, and what were my reasons? And I really discovered, um, so much about my sexuality and I got to the point where I was like, well, I'm not ashamed of this anymore. Right. I'm actually like, no, would I do it all again? Would I necessarily have sex with the same people again looking back no but what's the point of having a regret right like I can't change it I can learn from it right like the ancient Gnostics used to say you make a mistake you correct it without shame you just correct the mistake right right so I or learned- not even looking at it as a mistake as seeing the opportunity to learn from 
right? Right. right. Well, I, I definitely, you know, um, didn't always honor the, the temple mm-hmm. of my body. And I, I had also been sexually assaulted um, more than once. And I didn't honor, I didn't know actually what mm-hmm. this helped me understand. And that's part of the, the future story. But I didn't actually even know that I belonged to me. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know that my body wow. was mine. Yeah, I didn't even I love know. what you said that you didn't know that you belong to yourself. I don't think you know most of us actually think about that. Like that's so profound to think you do belong to yourself first and foremost. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I didn't know mm. because what I experienced with him was partly trying to get him to accept me, my decisions, my past, who I was, without me accepting me. Mm-hmm. And so I kept looking to him instead of myself. Right. How did he view me? What did he determine about me? What value did he give me? Did he love me? Because I believed that love and acceptance and belonging came from outside of me. Mm. Because this is what we've been conditioned to believe. And this is part of now my soul mission and purpose, but also was the healing of my soul was for thousands of years, literally women have been told this and conditioned and programmed to believe that we belong to another. We exist for the benefit of man, Mm -hmm. not for ourselves. And that it's selfish to think of ourselves, that it's, that it's, selfish to choose for ourselves and it's so deeply embedded i didn't know these are what i was this is what i was thinking right Mm -hmm. but my subconscious was at play because the subconscious shows us through our emotions shows us through our feelings shows us through our tendencies and habits and behavior and so i really um was reliving the story of adam and eve and my spirit guides at that time started to help me understand this that's when they started coming to me uh, to help me understand, I was reliving the story of Adam and Eve. And they told me about Lilith before I knew who Lilith was, right? And they made it clear that, um, well, they didn't make it clear. It always was a mystery, something I had to figure out. But um, I, I became clear that I was reliving this story with this man who was like Eve. He literally told me, you're not allowed to say no to your husband. So if I said no to sex, that was his response. He would throw off his, we ended up getting married. He would throw off his wedding ring. We got married mostly so I could stay in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, not because I actually wanted to get married, but that's a whole mm-hmm. different story. <laughs> um, and so uh, the he would tell me, like, when I did leave, you can't leave me. I'm your husband. Like, he believed that once I was married, I could never leave. Like he would say these things to me, right? right? He would say them. He believed them so deeply. And so it really helped me see so clearly in my own experience, having come from such a, I'm so liberated feminist mm-hmm. background to living what is a story written 1200 to 600 BC. So we're looking at 2,500 to 30,000 years ago 
this story that was written down still happening today in real life. And I'm not the only woman. I mean, one in in four women are still being abused by their partners. (laughs) One in three women are still sexually assaulted. I'm not the only one reliving a story of Adam and Eve, right? Right. And so it really helped me see how deeply ingrained these beliefs are for men and women. And both men and women are suffering. The result of these belief systems, both men and women are suffering from believing that the divine is outside of us, believing the divine is not in all things, believing that love comes from outside of us. Because he would do the same thing. But the reason my heart was going out to him, right? It was like, oh, well, Adam is lonely in the garden and he needs Eve as his companion right? And he needs her to know himself as lovable and all these things, right? Like there's so many similar dynamics. And and both of us were blaming each other, like, you know, like the story of Adam and Eve, like, well, the reason I'm suffering is because of what you're doing. The reason I'm suffering is because of who you are and what you're doing. And all of these, all of these dynamics that play out in relationships to this day that are rooted in what I call the wounds of separation, Mm -hmm. guilt and shame and doubt, and fear, and unworthiness, and blame. Right. And those are the wounds that I lived and, and became so apparent, right? Because these wounds kept me from recognizing my own divine nature, that love exists within me, that in fact, I am that. And Lilith is the legendary first wife of Adam, in Jewish mythology. And Lilith, because there are two different creation stories in uh, Genesis. And the first was really referring to Lilith, though it's not by name. Mm-hmm. And the first is that God made man and woman at the same time in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And then the second creation story with completely different facts and chronology and all of that is God made man in his image. And then from man, he took Eve from the rib of man while he was sleeping to give him a helper and companion. Right. Right. And so, and that story, man is of God. Woman is not. Woman is made of man for man. And that's the story that we hear. That's the story I was uh, taught growing up. That's the story that regardless of whether or not we've ever read it or conscious of it pervades the collective psyche Mm -hmm. and still affects relationships even if they're not abusive mm-hmm. the power dynamics right it creates unequal right. power dynamics and belief systems and relationships right and so lilith and jewish mythology story and there's so much more juice to her but that's a whole other story <laughs> that's the topic we today. but lilith says to adam i want to be on top at least half the time sexually because right she wants half the pleasure at least and he goes no and she's like, well, wait a minute here. I am also made of God. I am equally divine, meaning I have just as much of a right to be on top as you do because we're equals. And he goes, no. And she says, all right, then. She grew her wings and she flew away. <laughs> she refused to accept a state of submission or servitude or be silenced, which is what Eve accepted, right? And so Lilith, I began to harness the power of Lilith. And the short version is I left. 
one day it hit me that my soul is at stake and that as much as I was trying, because I was very much using the philosophy of, well, if I change, he'll change, right? Well, if I come into more wholeness and I come into more love and I come into more of this, he'll change. But that just kept me in an abusive relationship mm-hmm. <laughs> because he wasn't changing. I was changing. He wasn't changing. And so what changed is my lack of tolerance and my lack of acceptance and the rising of my boundaries mm-hmm. and the rising of my voice is what changed. Right. What changed is not him because he's his own person. What changed is my, how I related to him. Right. And so I, it, my spirit guides actually helped me with this. It they became very clear that my soul is at stake. And they actually told me that I would be better off homeless than with him. And that was a shocker to me because safety and trying to cling to safety has been a huge thing in my life, right? It's one of my Chiron woundings, right? Oh, I can cling to safety out here through your love, through your acceptance, through money, through security, through the job. And, and, and my soul has continuously put me through situation after situation to anchor into the safety of my divinity. Again, whole other podcast we can do on right. that. so the um when i heard that i still resisted it and i'm like i'm living in a foreign country i have barely any money left to my name i spent it all traveling right and just surviving i couldn't legally work there so i wasn't getting income and i barely knew a soul i knew like two people in the area closely. I had never told my mom anything that was going on because I was too ashamed, right? The time mm-hmm. I was too embarrassed. And, and then I would think about all the logistics. How am I going to get to the airport? How am I going to, uh, how am I going to leave? I can't put the plane on his credit card. I don't have enough. I didn't have a regular credit card. I just had my debit card. I don't have enough for that. Um, plus to get to the airport, all these things. And so essentially I just decided, screw it spirit is telling me my soul's at stake i've got to leave like and i just felt it in my body i went upstairs to journal like the next morning and it was as if i felt the whole house turn into this like energy caving Mm. in on me and i was like oh my god i have to leave right now Mm -hmm. because there's way more to the physicality of the story um there are a lot of other energies at play Mm -hmm. that were at play and so I literally just packed a small black shoulder bag and I walked out the door and I walked to the bus stop and I called a friend and I was like, do you have any plans tonight? Can I come stay with you? Cause she's like, Oh, I have plans. I'm so sorry, Jesse. What about tomorrow? And I started crying. I'm like, <laughs> she's like, what, what come over tonight? I, whatever. That's fine. You can come over. It's fine. I'll change my plans. And so I meet her at the library, I get downtown, I take the bus downtown and I go to the library and I'm waiting for her. I'm like, what am I doing? What am I doing? Right. It's the middle of winter. It was January, 2016. And, um, I, she picks me up and I go to her house and we have dinner, this Thomas, this man that she had brought with her, who was a friend. And the three of us are having dinner. We go get wine and chocolate and food because we're like, we just need to like live a little bit and have this conversation. And then I wasn't even sure I was going to tell them anything. And they ask, so why are you here and what's going on? And so I tell them very little piece. And all I really say is like, I need a place to stay. 
while I fully make up my mind as to what I'm going to do, because a huge part of me had no interest in returning to the States at the time. And I also needed, I, I was too traumatized to get on a plane at that moment. Even if I'd had the money, I, I just don't know that I would have at that moment. And so literally he's like, well, Marion, who was a, a mutual friend that the other friend that I knew, I had never met Thomas before gave me the key to her apartment and she just went to England for several weeks. Why don't we call her in the morning and see if she'll let you stay there? And so literally I walk out the door, no idea where I'm going in a foreign country, knowing one person. And then the next day I had a place I could stay for up to five weeks. I mean, it was a miracle because that's what happens when you say yes to your soul. It was a miracle. And so the next morning he takes me to this little, a perfect little place in the middle of Avignon, France. And um, it was like this sanctuary where I could focus on anchoring back into me um, and really get, gain the strength and courage I needed to fully leave and to fully stop contact. And to tell my mom and to ask for her to loan me the money to get back to America. And, you know, of course, as with any relationship, you know, he tried and tried and tried. Um, and I took all the safety precautions, not telling where I was, because I knew that if I told him I was leaving, he would not let me leave alive. I knew that in my bones. And as much as it hurts to say that, it's true. Wow. And so um, I was able to leave safely and keep myself protected. And I left the country about five weeks later. Um, and the reason that this story is so important is that not only is it my story, it's a story of so many women, right. but it is my passion and my purpose to the story of Adam and Eve was written with a very intentional goal in mind. And it was written over a period of 600 years by countless, I mean, literally hundreds of authors and redactors and editors, but the very intentional purpose of denying the divinity of woman. Mm -hmm. And these beliefs are at the root of violence against women, both sexual violence and violence in relationships. They're at the root of unequal power dynamics. They're at the root of our own doubt right? Our fear, our shame, our beliefs, because at the time that the story was written and a couple thousand years before, there was this great transition around the world. And again, we could spend a whole episode going into the details of this. So I'll just give it a little bit. And during this time, prior to this writing, there had always been a feminine face of the divine equal to the masculine face of the divine always and the divine had been recognized in all things in every person and communion with all of life was worship that was a form of worship to be in communion with life itself and this great split occurred in which these nomadic tribes began to invade other civilizations and tribes with what they called a warring sky god that was masculine that they put up above and they said no other God can be worshiped. 
And they would literally go into places where the goddess, a feminine face of God, was worshipped and, and rip the women out of their temples and turn them into prostitutes and turn them into slaves and take away their ability to have money, take away their ability to survive. And when this split occurred, when God was put up in the heaven and was no longer recognized on earth or in other things, it took several thousand years for this to really fully occur. And there's many allusions to this in the Bible itself, where they talk about, you're not allowed to worship the goddess anymore. And the women say, but when we worship the goddess, we had everything and everything was provided for, you know, why would we stop? And well, we're going to kill you if you don't. I mean, this is all in the Bible. It's documented, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In addition to be documented in a lot of other documents, but and and so what happened is that this great split occurred not only between heaven and earth, right, but between matter and spirit, and between masculine and feminine, man and woman. And when this split occurred, we then developed this concept, men in particular, developed this concept that you have to go up and out to access spirit, and that's something that you see in so many spiritual communities now, especially a lot of new age communities where spirit is up there, spirit is up. We ascend, we go up. Right. And I fell into that too for a while, mm-hmm. right? Because it's what we're told. And it actually, we think that it's up there, that we're going to be liberated. And yeah. somehow some angels are going to lift us up. And I right, think at the end of like, the day, we don't trust our own inner power. And we all always want to think there's outside of us that is going to give us that, right? There's something outside. And therefore, and it comes from not believing in ourselves and trusting ourselves fully, right? It comes from that and it comes yeah. from these deeply rooted wounds that it's not safe to trust yourself because look what yeah. happened to Eve right, when she right. dared trust herself, right? Yeah. Punishment, yeah. cast out, right? I mean, it mm. goes back into these mm-hmm. ancient beliefs that mm-hmm. we are we were killed when we trusted ourselves right. we were killed when we dared think we were divine mm-hmm. we were killed when we we were deemed whores when we owned our sexual life or right. right right we, we were, were witches and we were right. whores and yeah the last witch was burned 200 years ago mm-hmm. and it wasn't until 1970s that a woman could say no to her husband when he wanted to have sex Right. It was only a hundred years ago women got the right to vote. I mean, this is not, we think that this is like so old and antiquated. No, it's not. It resides in the subconscious mind of every single man and woman on this planet. I don't care what you think consciously. Mm-hmm. It resides in your subconscious mind. And until we do the work, if we want to create heaven on earth, if we want to unify body and soul, if we want to unify masculine and feminine energies within us and around us, we have to do this work to dig out these beliefs, to reframe them, to access the divinity and to embody it ourselves. And we have to do this if we actually want to shift where our planet is going. We have to do this work. We have to look at it. We've got to look at the shadow of what our our civilization has been experiencing for thousands of years. We can't pretend these things aren't real. We can't pretend they're not in our subconscious. We can't pretend we're not afraid. We can't pretend that our safety exists outside of us in a physical object. We can't pretend that we go up and ascend when the truth is it is a consciousness shift. We shift our consciousness to see the God in all things, to see the divine in all things, including ourselves. We can't say the divine is in all things and then ignore the divine in our own being because if God is in all things, God is in you too. 
It's so simple. Yes. Jessica, it's obvious how passionate you are. And I absolutely love it. I love <laughs> your story, your journey. And I can see why you're so passionate. And I so admire that within you, that not only, you know, you turn what you got to gold in a way, what your journey was, what you went through from and learn and grow and became who you are right now, which is beautiful, very empowering just to listen to you. And it's very obvious that, you know, you're very passionate and it's obvious to me why you're doing what you're doing, you know, because, you know, thinking from where your background was from a lawyer, right? And then the time that you spend to for education and all that. So some might think, how in the world, you know, you made that transition and why did you make that transition? But what you share with us, you know, made it very clear, you know, why you're so deep to transition to this, you know, what you do now, which is great and very much needed. And I personally appreciate what you do and how passionate you are. Thanks for sharing your journey and just love every minute of it. I couldn't even stop you for a minute because I was so into it. <laughs> and I'm sure everybody who is going to listen, who's listening, is going to learn a lot from your journey. Thanks for sharing that. Well, thank you for allowing me to share. And I hope that there are some tidbits that each person can take in and identify with and share, you know, because we are, we are not here to be living a life of a straight path and do what we're told, right? We're not here to, to have possessions. We're not here to live in the way everybody else thinks that we're meant to live, right? And if nothing else, I hope that each person takes away that it is your soul only, your unique soul that can guide you to your truth, that can guide you to your path and nothing outside of you can ever get you there. With my clients, I say, I will never tell you what to do. I will never tell you what to do. I will guide you to your truth and I will help you remove the blinders to seeing it and accessing it because each soul has a very unique path for a reason. And we each have our own blessings and our own gifts to bring forth and our own healing to do from past lives, right? And our own, our own contribution to this reclamation of heaven on earth and our own divinity and that reunion with ourself is, is the of it all. <laughs> well said. <laughs> and we're going to end it right there. And again, I am so, uh, thankful for you being able to be here and share this journey with us so we can all learn from it. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you. Bye. <laughs> mm -hmm.